I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. I wanted to step away from the daily politics today and take a bit of a longer view because maybe you're wondering the same thing I am. What's going on with the Republican Party? Everywhere you turn, there's another layer of erosion, whether from politicians or party elders or longtime political donors. Regardless of who wins the presidency, something big has changed within the Republican Party. And I don't care which party you belong to, if either of them looks like it's disintegrating before our eyes, that means definitionally that our political system, the one that's done us pretty well over the last 200 years, is changing. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying change is bad or that it hasn't happened before. I'm definitely not saying it's not needed. But change is underway, and for anyone the least bit curious, the question becomes... What's next? That's what I wanted to learn in this conversation. Where is the Republican Party today, and where is it going? We pulled together two great guests to help us think about it. Matt Lewis is a senior contributor at The Daily Caller, a CNN political commentator, and author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots. Matt also serves as a contributing editor for The Week and a weekly columnist for Roll Call. Tegan Goddard, as we know, is founder and publisher of Political Wire. I'd tell you that Tegan thinks and writes about politics continually, even in his spare time, but I happen to know he has no spare time, so let's leave it at continually. It was a really thoughtful conversation with these two who come at the question from different perspectives, and I hate to disappoint any of you who are addicted to the cable TV shows, but there's no yelling or screaming in this podcast. There's not even any name-calling. Maybe this conversation wasn't as good as I thought it was. Well, you'll have to be the judge. But before we begin, some questions. Who will win the White House? What can we expect from the upcoming debates? And what about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit group that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now here's my conversation with Matt Lewis and Tegan Goddard. My thanks to both of you for joining. I guess, you know, I should start. Is it fair to ask, Matt, and, and why don't we start with you? What is the Republican Party today? Is there a Republican Party today? I think that there's a real struggle right now for the heart and soul of the Republican Party, and I don't think it's clear what the party stands for. Um, I think that we've been having these um, this moment of introspection for a while. Donald Trump is a symptom of this problem. He did not create it. And um, I think that it's possible that we are, in fact, at a moment of change where the Republican Party will become, whether Trump wins or not, will become a more populist party. And that means that a lot of the assumptions about what it means to be a Republican and indeed a lot of what a lot of the reasons that I consider myself a conservative um, will kind of be out the window. I think that's probably now more likely than than 
the notion that things would go back to the way they were before and that Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio would <laughs> would sort of be the um, what what we think of when we think of Republican. So th- there's there's a lot there, and uh, you know part of part of what you said that you know it, it, this didn't just come out of nowhere, and that uh, you know Trump is a, a symptom as opposed to the actual problem. You know, you you, you forgive me, you you, you know you sound that, that that's a little bit of what uh, you know President Obama made some of those points even last night in uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Yes, you know <clears throat> he's he's often right. Um, he does have ulterior motives. Uh, you know, when I wrote my book, Too Dumb to Fail, part of the argument was, or part, part, I think part of the part of the value to that book was somebody who is a conservative who actually cares about conservatism, you know, rolling up the sleeves, looking under the hood and diagnosing the problem. And I, and I think I gave some pretty hard, hard truths. And quite often I'll hear somebody like President Obama, who is exactly right, everything he says is right, but I also think there were other times when he actually contributed to the problem. And in fact, there was a moment, I don't know if you remember, when, when I believe at least he was picking a fight with Donald Trump in the primary with the hidden agenda being that he knew this would actually help Donald Trump win the Republican nomination. Um, and so... You know, sometimes I think he's right in diagnosing the Republican Party's problems, but, you know, he does have, um, uh, you know, questionable motives sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah un- understood. He he may have, have other motives, no doubt. I, I mean, who among us uh, doesn't? But, you know, and, and, and let's, we can get into, you know, some of the, the politics and, and that whole discussion, but the 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 point of what is the party and and where does it go i mean taken what did you you know matt talking about uh that that it's it's changed and it made you know moving a little bit more populist and moving away from those uh conservative principles perhaps that uh, people like matt have have written about um what's your take sure one of the reasons i am I'm excited to have this conversation with matt is that you know a lot of people you know going back you know 6 months ago 9 months ago they predicted exactly what was going to happen to donald trump you know the never trump crowd they you know within the republican party they predicted that matt though has seen for several years the problems that were brewing in the republican party and to me that's the that's the point as matt said trump is really the symptom he's not the problem and the problem with the republican party is profound and so when you look at uh, when you look at a speech like President Obama gave, gave talking about feeding the crazies, he's you know he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. This is what's happened. When it was politically acceptable to say Barack Obama was not born in this country, a lot of Republicans just nodded in agreement and said this. And Matt is also right that it's to the Democrats' interest to have a divided Republican Party. So the Democrats you know have helped the Republican Party you know as best they could. You know, it, it tried to create this, you know, these massive divisions and this implosion that we're seeing. Um, Republicans have caused most of it themselves. And I think, as Matt has argued in his book, you know, there is no common intellectual basis now for what it means to be a Republican. So when I look at my Republican friends, typically there's two reasons why they decided to become Republicans. One is they kind of subscribe to a, a Paul Ryan type uh, freedom agenda, free markets, you know, smaller government you know, less taxes, that type of thing. 
And it's hard to see the Republican Party today really standing for that. And it's actually not just today, not just the party under Donald Trump. It's hard to see how George W. Bush was for that. You know, in terms when you looked at what the Bush administration actually accomplished and actually did, that's really not what they stood for. The other group of people, you know, that who who I who have identified with the Republican Party have typically been. Um, you know, social conservatives or, or people who are more religious and where, where religion plays an important role in their lives, and they have seen the Republican Party as more friendly to them. Well, clearly, I mean, everyone, no, no one pretends that Donald Trump is some so, sort of religious person, and yet we've got this really interesting, you know, interesting split that's happening where a lot of religious conservatives see Trump for exactly for who he is and have, and have bailed on his candidacy. But then you look at some of the, you know, religious right leaders, you know, the Tony Perkinses, the Jerry Falwell Juniors. These guys have embraced Trump and have accepted even some of the most grotesque language of his. They have discounted it and written it off. And it makes you wonder if Barack Obama had ever said something like this or if, you know, the Clintons had ever said anything like this. They would be the they would be the people leading the charge against them. But there's this complete disconnect right now. And it's really, you know, this is the thing that the Republican Party as a whole needs to work through. And Matt, you kind of wrote that, you know, part of that, the last part of what Tegan was saying, you wrote about that just yesterday. I mean, you you wrote about uh, James Dobson and how, you know, many high profile evangelical leaders, um, they still support Trump for president. And, And as you wrote, the key question here is whether character should matter or whether a lack of character should be a deal breaker. And it sounds like Trump's and I'm quoting you. It sounds like Trump's apologists have answered with a resounding no. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, you know, not that long ago. I remember the days of the Bill Clinton scandals and Bill Clinton's defenders basically said, look, he's a bad guy who did these bad things, but he's got the right policies. He's on our team. So we have to defend him. The critics, the conservative critics of Bill Clinton said, no, that is wrong. Character really matters. And um, we need leaders who are, are men of men or women of principle who have the right character. Um, and it's horrible to say that just because he's on your team, you're going to reflexively defend him no matter his sins, no matter how he's abused the office and all of this stuff. So, um, so now we find ourselves in a position where many of these same Christian conservative leaders are basically making the exact same argument that Bill Clinton's defenders made, which is to say, yeah, but, yeah, but he's on our team. Um, and these issues, policy issues are really important because he's going to have these Supreme Court picks and Hillary Clinton's going to be a horrible president. And so you have to overlook that. And I guess the point of my column was was not to say who's right about the larger question. Look, you could argue that 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 this is all about what team you're on and that it's tribalism and that the ends justify the means. Or you could argue that, no, character really counts um, and we have to be willing to please our own side and call them as we see them be intellectually honest. You could make either, you know, you could make, you, you could, you could legitimately make either argument. Um, what you can't do, <laughs> what you can't do is pick and choose when you're going to stand on principle and when you're going to make compromises 
based on political expediency. And I think that's what we're witnessing here is, is you know, very obvious examples of rank hypocrisy. So, Matt, you know, one thing that I was uh, discussing with some folks, I was uh, at the University of Virginia and there was a bunch of students um, at this talk and we were discussing the idea of whether the Republican Party could still exist. And it was it was my premise that I did not think that the Republican Party could exist without these with, with these current tensions that they were going they were essentially breaking apart the Republican Party. But to come back to that argument is so, so certainly on a national level, and you look at the Republican Party, it seems like it's increasingly becoming a regional party, really focused in the South. But the the counter argument to that is the Republican Party at the state and local level appears to be extremely strong. And that the the party itself, even if there are not these intellectual underpinnings that unite it uh, at a national level, the party itself seems to be quite strong. So you see in many many blue states, you know, you see Republican governors, and it's a, uh, and you see Republican controlled state legislatures. So how how do you how how do you balance how how do you work that out? And what do you think about the Republican Party itself? Can 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 the party exist? It's interesting. That's a, a, a really interesting um, thing to say, and I don't quite know what to say about that. My sense is that it's hard to maintain a national political party without a coherent worldview, without some glue binding it together. Um, so I, I don't know if it's possible sort of indefinitely for the Republican Party to win state and local elections um, without there being sort of an overarching purpose or, or sort of, you know, glue to hold the party together. But even if it is possible, it's still a huge problem for all the reasons that everyone talks about the presidency. The presidency is incredibly powerful, obviously, when it comes to setting foreign policy, obviously, when it comes to Supreme Court appointments. And so even if we would concede that the Republican Party could continue on winning state houses and maybe even controlling the House of Representatives, um, they, you, certainly you could serve as a check on, um, on, on the Democratic Party through like state's attorneys generals who do a lot of work that, that's sort of um, under the radar. But, you know, again, just to sort of cede the presidency would be um, – a huge, you know, concession. So where does the party go? I, and I'm not convinced that the party does disintegrate. I think that that's one of the options, certainly a certainly within the realm of possibility that the party goes away, um, just because it's untenable to have a party with Donald Trump and a party with Paul Ryan. They're, they're so different on so many levels. Um, the party that I envisioned, of course, is a party that's more like Marco Rubio and Ben Sass and Paul Ryan and Nikki Haley and Susana Martinez. That seems to be unlikely. Um, Matthew Contanetti has a piece out today as we're taping this at the Free Beacon where he says, you know, this populism thing goes away if we just have some economic growth. Well, if. <laughs> Doesn't seem likely in the near term. So I think that, you know, one option, of course, is that the party goes away, disintegrates. Um, another option might be that, you know, things look really bad and then the economy bounces back and all of a sudden people are, are less worried. They, they don't hoard. They um, the, all of a sudden they're not so worried about immigrants. 
and you have sort of the reemergence of the Paul Ryan vision. I actually think the most likely scenario, though, is that the Republican Party co-ops good parts of Trumpism, or at least, let me say, the, the, the less evil parts of Trumpism, and gets rid of the bad parts, like the really bad parts. So if you could have a Trump, if you could have a sort of an economic populist party that spoke to working class whites, but also other working class Americans, and it's somewhat protectionist, it's sort of anti-elite, anti-establishment, anti-insider, but it doesn't have the, the racist aspects that Trump has. It doesn't have the sexist sort of, you know, misogynistic aspects that Trump, I think, just brings, not philosophically, but just as a virtue of, of his cult of personality. So if you could have someone like a Tom Cotton or a Mike Pence leading this kind of party that could win states like Ohio – um, without turning off every single college-educated, you know, Republican woman, you could cobble together, I think, an electoral victory. But, but Matt, is that – so you could, you could cobble together an electoral victory, perhaps, yeah. But, but is that the Republican Party? I mean, I guess you could call it the Republican Party, but the Republican the, – the, the bedrock principle of, of all of them, of the Republican Party, is free markets and limited government. And, and the, the party that you just described, you know, the, the parts of taking of, of Trump with, you know, the, 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 you know, those go against free trade. Those are go, go against limited government, the, the least evil parts of Trumpism, as, as you characterized it. So I, I guess you could call it the Republican Party, but is that truly, would that truly be the Republican Party? Yes, I think it's important to put this in historical context. So my version, you know, of, of conservatism is a free market party in line with Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp. But the Republican Party was a protectionist party. Um, it was founded as a protectionist party. Uh, one, you know, that was the other thing that doesn't get talked about. The Republican Party is founded um, to, you know, uh, to be an abolitionist party. Um, but it's also a protectionist party from day one. And, and even greats like, you know, Calvin Coolidge, conservative greats like Calvin Coolidge were in favor of protective tariffs and things like that. Um, now, that was all sort of rejected after um, Smoot-Hawley. And I think that Ronald Reagan adopted this much more optimistic version of conservatism which basically said, instead of fighting over who gets a piece of the pie, we're going to grow the pie. And that was the optimistic, sunny side of supply-side economics was that more people equals more ideas, more opportunities. And so through my lifetime, being a conservative was a kind of an op optimistic um, philosophy. So what I'm suggesting this compromise would be a rejection of, of my brand <laughs> – of sort of Reagan Kemp conservatism, but it actually would in a way be returning to the roots of the Republican party. And even today when we talk about, you know, that there's a reason we call them paleo conservatives, you know, like paleo conservatives, like the old line Republican party that, that Pat Buchanan, we call him a paleo conservative because he's actually, um, you know, subscribing to a brand of, of Republicanism that predates the, the free market, stuff 
And um, so this is in a way returning to the party's, you know, original stance. But, but can you, you know, put, I, yeah, go, go ahead, take go on. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I think that, I think that what Matt is saying there is pretty interesting because when you go back and you look at what Reagan did, it was really, it was really pretty, pretty interesting. And it may offer some clues as to how the Republican party reassembles itself as Matt is kind of talking about, but he was able to bring together three different wings of the Republican party. You had for, for, I'll call them Wall Street Republicans. Those are kind of like the, the Paul Ryans of the party, people who believe in free markets, free trade, low taxes. You had the, so those, those, those Wall Street Republicans, you had the religious conservatives that we talked about, and then you had the national security hawks. And particularly in the, uh, in the, during the Cold War era, going against the Soviet Union, that was a very big and valuable constituency. And then you fast forward to George W. Bush's administration, and he broke it. He broke the equation, and he yeah. broke the equation because he he fought two wars with, with no real plan behind them, and he he lost the national security hawks. You know, he 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 lost them entirely. Uh, you had the economy, you know, obviously, you know, crater, and uh, and also he was seen as not a you know with his with his tax cuts, he was seen as not a fiscal conservative by many of the Wall Street Republicans, and he lost that group. The only group by the end of his administration that stuck with him were these religious conservatives. And then you fast forward to the Obama years, eight years later, and you've got Donald Trump leading the party now as the, as the Republican nominee. And really, you can't see any one of those, those core groups of people uh, you know, subscribe. Donald Trump doesn't stand for any of them anymore. And so the whole thing, the whole thing is really mixed up. So if you go back to the way Reagan did it, which was pretty genius, and because it really just laid the groundwork for a 20 or 30 year run for Republicans at the national level, that's what's needed right now. And so right. it will be interesting to see if that is, if that is the way it goes. And I think that Matt, I think you have some pretty, pretty interesting um, insights on this, on this you know, on an economic populist agenda, because, you know, while Donald Trump has made some, you know, some movement, you know, trying to attract the Bernie Sanders voters, he's clearly not the guy who's going to attract Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. voters. But there are a lot of people out there who believe globalization, you know, has hurt them. And they're on the, they're on the left and then they're on the right. Um, and there could be a person in the future who could actually pull that group together but, towards one side or another. But, but guys, the, the, the part I'm not understanding is so fine. So you've got social, you, you've got the, the social conservatives and you've got that group and you've got the, um, war, you know, you, you've got the, the military and the, the national security hawks. Fine. You've got those two. But on this economic part, you know, the, the, you've got two different sides. I mean, you have the free market, uh, limited government group, and you've got the protectionism group. And I don't, how do you bring, so, so maybe those two groups economically might fight for, you know, the support of the social conservatives, the support of the, um, uh, military and, and, uh, you know, international, you know, the, the national security hawks. But how do you put those two, those two economic principles really go against each other when you're talking about core principles. And so I guess my question is, how, which one of those ends up winning, which, which ends up becoming the core of the Republican Party? And then is there 
a, a, is a Republican A and Republican B and, and both have the social and the national security and one is populist and the other one has social conservative and national security, but is free trade. I mean, how did, how does that come together? Matt, why don't you go? Well, okay. So, I mean, that's a really good question and nobody knows the answer. And that is the fact that we're asking that question and wrestling with that question is, is indicative of of the chaos and the confusion and the trouble the party is having right now. Um, I will say, I think that again, to sort of bring it back to history, you know, as, as Tegan was saying, you know, the, the Reagan coalition came together partly because of the cold war. And so you had strange bedfellows. You had people joining a movement and a party who really didn't necessarily like each other and who really didn't necessarily have that much in common. But they could sort of overlook their differences in order to defeat the Soviet Union. So if you're a pro-lifer, you can be in the same party with these sort of cosmopolitan uh, free marketers because we're all trying to beat the godless atheist, you know, Ruskies. And if you are a free marketer, you can be in the same party with these sort of Neanderthal like Christian right people, because we've got to stop this economic system that's anti-capitalist. And obviously, if you're a foreign policy hawk, you can be in that movement for like obvious reasons. They've got nukes pointed at us. Um, I think that really the the this this coalition began un, unraveling when the Berlin Wall fell, and we're sort of you know it, it takes time for things to really come apart. And so I think that's part of the story. Um, I think that, that fundamentally what we've got is just a realization that the Republican base, the actual rank and file voters are not that um, concerned about conservative philosophy and things such that are somewhat esoteric, like the rule of law or limited government or, you know, whether or not, free markets make us more prosperous than, than, you know, protectionist markets. We thought that they cared more about that. Um, but in fact, it seems like they're more interested in us versus them. Um, and, and so here's where I think it becomes tribalism and who are us, us are (laughs) working class white Americans who, um, who feel like the country, the American dream they were promised has has been let them by. So I think things like um, law and order actually are more important than whether or not you believe in like free trade, you know, nobody knows who David Ricardo is or really cares about Adam Smith that much, but the sort of the Nixonian law and order thing I think is, is more in vogue now. So I think that's where the party, I think that's where the party is headed the question, I think, is if you can find a way to tap into that um, and, and, and to sort of tap into that without – but also minimize the really negative aspects of Trumpian populism and co-opt it and do a party – I have a piece today at the Daily Caller called A Populism We Can Live With. And that's the question. Can you, know, can you get rid of the worst – instincts and aspects of Trumpism and um, but sort of meld populism with traditional conservatism and create a coherent party 
that could win Ohio in the future? Maybe. It's, I think it's possible, but you, you really have to thread that needle to do it. Tegan, what, what's your view? I mean, the, the, will Wall Street Republicans, I mean, you saw the piece, that today's New York Times has a piece, donors are calling on the you know Republican National Committee to disown Donald Trump. And, and at the core of that really is, is a, a bunch of people, Bruce Kovner among them, calling for a return to the economic principles of, of the Republican Party. And, and you know, with, with Matt's eye towards history, I guess we need to characterize it as the, the, the you know, turn that Reagan made of free trade and uh, um, limited government. Will, will that group of very wealthy, you know, high donators, um, you know, very powerful voice within the Republican Party, would they support a Republican Party that was based on uh, populism uh, from an economic point of view and with a blend of social conservatism and foreign policy hawks? It's a really interesting question, and I think that it's probably – I think it's probably too hard to say what the Republican Party will become or do without actually also thinking about the Democratic Party. And the reason for that is, just as Matt suggested at the outset of this conversation, you know, obviously Democrats and President Obama in particular have benefited from exposing the rifts in the party. Um, How the Democrats react to uh, the Republican Party kind of coming apart like this will will certainly influence how how it goes. And and Democrats could certainly overplay their hand um, in terms of, you know, how far they want to take some of this. But they can also make the Democratic Party appealing for former Republicans in a a variety of ways. And and the Democrats also, as the the Democratic primary showed with Bernie Sanders, um, the Democrats are also struggling with the impact of globalization and how that is how that is hurt large segments of the Democratic uh, voting base. And in, in all, in whether it's young people who are coming out of college and who are having trouble finding jobs, or whether it's working class people who are trying to, uh, you, you know, who are losing jobs because their companies are being, you know, relocated outside of the country. Um, how the Democrats react to some of this is going to be interesting. And and, and it's it's hard to really tell, although this this may be one of the things that's kind of interesting about the WikiLeaks email dumps. You know, looking into these private conversations that Hillary campaign Hillary Clinton campaign strategists are having um, amongst themselves about how Hillary Clinton should position herself. You know, I don't think there's any in those in those leaks. I don't think there's anything in these emails that says anything more than, hey, she's a politician, <laughs> um, and she's trying to position herself uh, in front of different audiences in different ways. And Americans may not like the fact that she's a politician, but they don't really show much more than that. Um, but it is kind of interesting just to see their insights and to see how they reacted to some of the you know, some of the discussions during the primary campaign and some of the forces that were coming at them. Um, because it, is, you know, it certainly was not as easy for Hillary Clinton securing the Democratic nomination, as she might have thought it would be, considering almost nobody ran against her. Are we looking at this with the right paradigm? I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to define what will the two parties be? What will, you know, what will the Republicans be? What will the Democrats be? Well, look, when, when all of us were growing up, there were, you know, depending on where you live, three to nine TV channels. And, you know, today there are, you know, hundreds, thousands. Is... Is is a two party, is a two party system? Is that where our future is, or or you know, do we need more uh, political TV channels? Well, I mean, 
you know, historically, again, you know, the world has changed. So who knows what the future may hold? But um, but obviously, for whatever reason, the American system has lent itself. And I think some of it is, is who we are and some of it is, is just the product of the system being rigged. But the two-party system has, has endured for um, most of our history. And if one party dies, another party comes, you know, you, you still get two parties, just two, uh, a different name party, you know, the Whigs leave and the Republicans come in. And I would say, I don't know what the future holds. Um, it does seem like in every aspect of our lives, we are conditioned now to have more variety, more options. So it may be that we go that way. I do think we've been very well served by having two major parties because it, what it means is that typically somebody has to get 50% of the vote plus one. And I think that has a moderating effect when you have to have a, a national some, – something of a national consensus. So having two parties tends to keep fringe elements um, from becoming president. So I think that we've been well served by it, despite the fact I know a lot of people you know, lament the two-party system. Um, I would hate to see it go because I do think that, that it is forced – it has a, a inherently a moderating effect on the kinds of people we elect. Yeah, I think that I think that point, Matt, is a really good one, and, and I would completely agree with you. One of one of the reasons, and I think if you look at this election campaign, uh, and many people have written and made these own, these observations as well, but our democracy really is fragile. And you know, the, the idea that someone like Trump could come along, and you know, quote hijack a party, or uh, or begin to draw us into, or begin to delegitimize our our entire elections process. Um, as he potentially may do, as, as he's already doing, or, or he may do before, it almost, I mean, there, I've spoken to many people over the last few weeks that, you know, they fear for violence in the streets at some point. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of anger and that the way that this thing is working isn't so great. And so the idea that we need to kind of keep those fringe influences, you know, outside of some of our mainstream politics is probably a good thing and has probably contributed to the health of the United States over several hundred years. Yeah, and I would say I think Trump probably – I would imagine he's got like 30 percent of the vote that, that's with him no matter what. So there is a scenario where if there were enough candidates, enough you know, serious candidates, like if we had a tradition where the Libertarian Party was going to get 15 percent and the Green Party was going to get 20 percent, you know, if, if we had that sort of a system – then you could have certainly have a scenario where Trump wins the presidency with 30 percent. So, you know, you need like I don't know what did Bill Clinton have in 92, right, when Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote. He still had to have like 40 some percent of the vote. And that that has a that means you get more Americans buying in. You have to win the you know, you, you can't be a fringe element and attract that many votes. Um, but again, you know, we, we may be at, at a turning point. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you if in the future we had mo- more multiple candidate uh, campaigns. Excellent. As long as that means more debates as well. I mean, we'll have you know, there'll be more <laughs> televised debates, right? <laughs> nothing. Right. Nothing is bringing everyone together uh, like the debates. Well, um, 
guys, thank you both. It's uh, it's a it's a heck of a thing to to think about, and um, you know. Something something is clearly going on, and I think you did write a lot about it, Matt, in uh, in your book, uh, "Too Dumb to Fail." Um, but there, you know, there's something going on, and uh, you know, if if we anyone has a clear idea of what's next for the Republican Party, uh, I sure would, I sure would love to hear it. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, we should we should cue cue the music. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you. Well, that was my conversation with Matt Lewis and Tegan Goddard. What did I tell you? Just a ton of interesting and important ideas there. I mean, this economic split between the populists and the free traders, the idea that the two-party system has served us pretty well, and the thought of what can occur if the parties splinter and suddenly you don't need 50% of the vote or 40% to win, but instead maybe 30%, 25 Well, as we're seeing, you can rally 25 or 30 percent of the country around just about anything. We'll explore these ideas more in future conversations. In my view, these just might be the most important issues from the 2016 campaign. Anyhow, for today, my great thanks to Matt and Tegan for joining me and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. (music) 